This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Okay, so the title for my talk this evening is Does Moral Knowledge Require God? I'm going to try to offer a Thomistic perspective. Um, analytic philosophers are notoriously bad at um, building any kind of suspense, so I'll just tell you I think the answer is yes. <laughs> that's the answer. Um, so I'll try to explain why I think that's the answer. So I'm um, going to do three things this evening. Uh, the first thing I'm going to do, although uh, I specialize in contemporary analytic philosophy, especially epistemology, um, I'm going to do my best impression of a specialist in Aquinas this evening, um, and my best impression of somebody who's competent at pronouncing ecclesiastical Latin. <laughs> so I'm going to first offer a little summary of some things that Aquinas said about cognitio and notitia. I think that was right. All right. <laughs> so we're going to do that. Thank you. Um, I think that Aquinas makes a really interesting observation and offers an interesting distinction. And what I'm going to suggest is um, this distinction that Aquinas offers points in a certain direction, uh, namely a contemporary view about what knowledge is. So I'm going to try to connect up some things that Aquinas said about knowledge with um, things that are happening now in contemporary epistemology. So I'm going to offer a view about what knowledge is and suggest that perhaps this, was, this is what Aquinas had in mind. Okay, and then I'll quickly address one concern about some things that Aristotle says about episteme and um, what Aquinas says about scientia. Um, because on the surface, it looks like there's a tension between some things that Aquinas said and the view of knowledge that I'm going to suggest. But I'm going to try to convince you there really is no tension there. Okay, and then once we have that view of knowledge in hand, I'm going to apply it to uh, the main question of this talk, does moral knowledge require God? And I'm going to construct an argument against atheism from our ability to know things about morality. All right, so let's start with um, these things that Aquinas said about cognitio and notitia. So um, let's just take an ordinary case of visual perception. This is me seeing a bird. Um, you know, it looks like I'm shooting that bird with lasers. Uh, but this is supposed to be like the light reflecting off the bird and going into my eyes. Um, so as I said, I'm not myself a specialist in Aquinas, so I'm going to lean on some specialists um, to just, this is probably familiar territory for you if you've been to these Thomistic Institute talks before. Um, but here is Aquinas' take on what goes on in ordinary visual perception. So this is from Frederick Kogelston. So he says, in this sort of case where corporeal objects, sort of physical bodily objects, act upon the organs of sense, acting on both the body and the soul, not um, just the soul using a body, as Augustine thought. And somehow, um, humans have the ability in this process to apprehend the universals. That's in contrast to um, mere animals who are unable to do that. And we do that via phantasms or images that arise in our imagination, which represents particular material objects. And then we have, through our intellectual operations, the ability to apprehend the form of the material object um, that we're perceiving. So here now is a little bit from Christopher Brown. He says that what happens is the light reflects off these corporeal objects and then gives rise to this phantasm. 
Um, Christopher Brown says we get this phantasm of the bird, we're conscious of a blue, smallish object with wings. So that's happening in my mind. And then from this phantasm, including experiences of similar phantasms that I remember, I've got this power of active intellect that abstracts what Aquinas calls the intelligible species, leaving to, side, leaving to one side the features that are accidental, focusing on the nature or essence of what's being cognized. So I represented that here. This is the form of a bird. <laughs> so that gets into my active intellect. And you might wonder, um, how is it that I have this form in my mind? When you combine a form with matter, you get a literal bird. Um, but there's no literal bird in my mind, although there is the form of a bird in my mind. And um, I would, if you're interested in that sort of question, which I think is super interesting, I'd direct you to um, a previous Thomistic Institute lecture from our own Rob Coons. Here's what Rob said about this process. He says, when an accidental form is present in a natural substance, you do get instantiation. The substance instantiates the corresponding accent, so you get a literal bird when that happens. But when that very same form is present in the human intellect, you don't get instantiation, you get understanding. That's an interesting feature of Aquinas' view. That's what the form is doing in my mind. It's not instantiating birdness, but um, bringing about that I understand this form of a bird. Okay, and then the last step is, um, after this quiddity, this essence, this nature is received in the possible slash passive intellect, it's transformed into an inner word or concept. So there's an awareness of the quiddity, of what's been cognized, and a recognition that it corresponds to, in this case, the English word bird. So now I'm gonna get a little sentence in something like the language of thought that I recognize as corresponding to the type of experience I'm having. So maybe the sentence is something like, here's a bird or lo, there's a bird before me, or there's a bird, or something like that. Okay, so that's what happens in ordinary cases of perception. But the distinction that I want to focus on is this. Oh, something's happening to my slides. <laughs> so that's all right. Um, so Aquinas calls this, I use the weird font. That's my bad. Um, so Aquinas calls this cognitio. Um, and a Thomist friend of mine, when I asked him what this is, could you define um, cognitio for me? He said, it's the assimilation of a form to the intellect. An assimilation of a form to the intellect. But as I said, Aquinas makes an interesting distinction here because according to John Jenkins, now president of Notre Dame, um, this word cognitio could also be applied and is applied by Aquinas to false and illusory mental states. So cognitio is also going on in false and illusory mental states. So even if there's no real bird there, even if I'm just on bird LSD pills, um, and there's no bird there, I'm just kidding, don't take, don't take drugs, kids. Um, this doesn't exist. But suppose there were a kind of pill that would give you a hallucination of birds, and you've taken that pill, so there is no real bird there. Um, but everything else is the same. This would still count as a kind of cognitio. So Aquinas makes a distinction between that sort of um, general kind of apprehension and the good case, the successful case. And according to Jenkins, Aquinas reserves the word notitia for the good case, the successful case, where there really is a bird out there um, that's giving rise to your belief 
that is a burden here. And so he says, although these are near synonyms, um, notitia seems to be reserved for successful apprehension of the object. According to Jenkins, notitia is true belief with a positive epistemic status. And so Jenkins says that's what we should um, use, the word use the English word knowledge for. That's the closest um, translation for notitia is knowledge. That's what we seem to be climbing onto with our English word knowledge. Okay, so um, this is the distinction that I want to focus on for a second and say that it suggests a certain kind of theory of knowledge, um, this distinction between cognitio and notitia. Because I don't think the difference here is just that your belief ends up being true. That's not the difference between cognitio and notitia. Because that sort of thing could happen even by accident. Even if you're back on those bird LSD pills and you're just hallucinating a bird, we could make this belief come out true. Um, so your belief is something like there's a bird here. Um, even if this belief arose from a hallucination, we could rescue the belief and make it true if we suppose there are some birds hidden from view, um, but now there really is a bird here. And so your belief is true, but that's not why you formed it. Um, you formed it as a result of these pills. So I don't think that what Aquinas is onto is just that in Notitia we end up with a true belief. Rather, I think the distinction that he's getting at is, oh, by the way, in contemporary epistemology, this is called a Gettier case. Um, I think the distinction that Aquinas is getting on to here is in Notitia, um, the bird figures into the explanation of my belief. I end up believing that there's a bird here because ultimately there is a bird here. So it's not just that this belief is true, it's true because ultimately there really was a bird there. So I end up believing this because of um, this form that I extract with my active intellect. And I did that because of this phantasm and the phantasm arose in my mind because of that actual bird out there. So the truth of my belief figures into the explanation of why I ended up believing it. And if that's right, um, then that suggests a view of knowledge on which knowledge is just believing something because it's true. That's what knowledge is, when you end up believing something because it's true. The truth of your belief figures into the explanation of your belief, figures crucially into that explanation. So that's the view of knowledge that I want to suggest that is a um, contemporary theory about what knowledge is in epistemology uh, these days. And I think that might be what Aquinas was um, getting onto with this distinction between Promitio and Notitia. Okay, um, so that's one reason to accept it. Uh, it looks like Aquinas was sensitive to this distinction. Um, another reason to accept it is that it looks like it gives the right results in lots of cases of knowledge. Um, these are the easy cases. These are a little harder. So I'll start with the easy cases. We've seen how it works in perception. So in order for a perceptual belief to count as knowledge on this view, um, the truth of the belief has to figure crucially into the explanation of why you hold it. So we saw how that worked a second ago with the bird. Um, so perhaps I believe that there's a bird here because I had this phantasm, I had a phantasm because there really was a bird here. Memory will work in a similar way, like if you remember what you had for breakfast this morning, in the good case, say, I remember that I had granola this morning. Um, I believe that because I'm having that sort of characteristic memorial experience. In the good case, I'm having that experience because I really did have granola. So there, the truth of my belief is figuring into the explanation of, of my belief. 
So it counts as knowledge. You can sort of see how testimony is going to work. Um, so I believe that the Longhorn football team, Longhorns football team, won last weekend. Did that happen? Yes. Hey, finally. Um, so I believe that happened because I think I saw it on Twitter. I'm pretty sure that's where I saw it. And, and I hope that it was on Twitter. It was posted by like the official Longhorns, whatever, football Twitter people. And they posted it because it's true. That's what I was counting on when I trusted their um, Twitter post. So I believe that the Longhorns won because I saw it on Twitter, and I saw it on Twitter ultimately because it's true. So that's a case of knowledge by way of testimony, in this case, Twitter testimony. Um, intuition is a little bit different. So that's the faculty by which we um, know certain foundational truths about mathematics and logic, metaphysics and morality. It's the means by which, so sort of the name for whatever happens when we end up uh, knowing that two plus two is four, triangles have three sides, um, all bachelors are unmarried and so on. Just call that faculty rational intuition. Um, Aquinas believed in this. He thought there were truths that are self-evident. He had a theory about what makes a truth self-evident. He said a uh, proposition is self-evident in itself if its predicate is contained in the notion of the subject. That's what makes a truth self-evident. It's got this sort of spatial metaphor, this containing metaphor. So if you know what a bachelor is, um, you can sort of see that being unmarried, it's already sort of contained in the notion of a bachelor. So self-evident propositions are just sort of unpacking um, the subject. Okay, and so on this theory of knowledge, Intuition will count as knowledge when you form a belief, like for example, that two plus two is four, because you see the truth of that proposition. I kind of use a visual metaphor, because I don't know how else to put it. Oh, I could say you grasp the truth of the proposition. There's another metaphor for you. But whatever's going on in intuition, it looks a lot like a case of perception, except even more direct. Um, it's even better than the bird case. In the bird case, there's this phantasm between me and the bird. Um, but in intuition, there's nothing between me and the facts that I'm appreciating. And, and so it looks like intuition can also deliver knowledge because I can end up holding beliefs because they're true. Okay, so um, all of this was meant to sort of motivate this view. Looks like perhaps this is what Aquinas had in mind. Uh, also, it looks like it gives us nice results in all these cases of knowledge. It um, really clearly explains why those cases would count as knowledge. Um, it also handles those Gettier cases I mentioned a second ago. Um, so in the case where you're hallucinating a bird, you end up believing that there's a bird here. And there really is a bird here, hidden off stage. Um, why isn't that knowledge? Well, in this view, it's because you're not believing that there's a bird here because there really is a bird here. You're believing that there's a bird here because of those bird LSD pills you took. Okay, so this account nicely explains what's going wrong in Gettier cases. Okay, let me talk about um, at least one of these. In the interest of time, I might skip induction, but let me at least talk about deduction because that'll allow me to address one possible concern you might have um, about something Aquinas said about scientia. So um, what's gonna happen in the case of deduction when I form a belief on the basis of an argument? So here's an example from Aristotle's posterior analytics and Aquinas deals with it in his commentary on the posterior analytics. 
This is supposed to be a case of like the best kind of knowledge, sometimes translated as scientific knowledge, um, what Aquinas calls scientia, and what Aristotle calls unqualified episteme, episteme with no qualifications. And so what happens in this sort of case is I learn that all vines are deciduous. And I learned that by discovering some truths about the world that are kind of making it the case that all vines are deciduous. I learned the causes of why it is that all vines are deciduous, the sort of grounds or explanation for why they're deciduous. And the explanation goes something like this. It's this kind of syllogism. All vines are broadleaved. All broadleaved plants are sap congealers at the leaf stock. So that's the sap congealers at the leaf stock, and that's what causes the leaves to fall off. All sap congealers of the leaf stock are deciduous. Okay, and on this basis, I conclude, ah, oh, that's why all vines are deciduous. So here's the problem I want to point out. Um, according to Aristotle and Aquinas, in order for something, for a bit of knowledge to count as scientia, you've got to go through an argument like this. But what's more, it's also necessary that you come to believe the conclusion because of or on the grounds of the premises. So it's required that your apprehension of these causes become sufficiently complete and sure that it's your apprehension of the premises that's the cause of or the ground for your ascent to the conclusion. So at least on the surface, that looks like uh, a problem for this view of knowledge that I've been suggesting. Because on the view of knowledge that I've been suggesting, in order for you to know that all vines are deciduous, you've got to um, hold that belief because it's true that all vines are deciduous. So you've got to believe for because it's true. But it looks like in cases of deduction like this, you're believing this because of the premises. Um, you don't believe for because it's true, you believe it because of the premises. And that seems to be what um, Aquinas and Aristotle before him said about this special kind of scientific knowledge. Um, but I don't think there's a real tension here, and um, this is why. So I think that what you come to know when you uh, learn that each of these premises is true, you could represent it with Venn, Venn diagrams like this, um, what we do in logic classes sometimes. So when you come to know the premise one is true, you come to learn that everything in the vine category is in this other category of broad leaf things. The vines are a subset of the broad leaf things. So we get this little egg picture or in California, you'd say avocado, but you have those here too, right? You have a lot of avocados. We got a little avocado picture in here. Wrong colors though. Um, with premise two, what you come to learn is all broad-leaved uh, plants are sap congealers at the leaf stock. And with premise three, you learn that the sap congealers are themselves a subset of the deciduous things. So here's a way to represent what you learn when you um, come to know that the premises are true. And what I want to say is, once you've learned that these premises are true, you're in a position to appreciate the truth of the conclusion. It's already there, so to speak. That's the deal with valid arguments. Once you represent all the premises in this way, you don't have to add anything else to get the conclusion. The conclusion's already there. Look, here it is. The vines are a subset of the deciduous things. It's already represented on the screen. So I think one, a fair way of describing what's going on here is your knowledge of the premises puts you in a position to appreciate the truth of the conclusion. 
And your knowledge of the premises is represented by all these subset relations. But the conclusion's there. Now you're in a position to see, oh yeah, the conclusion's got to be true. And I think that's what Aristotle and Aquinas are saying. I think that's enough to make them happy. Here's a bit from Aristotle. We know a thing without qualification when we recognize the explanation in virtue of which the thing is the way it is. Knowledge is something of this sort. So I think that's what's going on here. You do recognize the explanation in virtue of which the thing is the way it is. Okay, but also I think it's fair to say that once you're, oh, sorry, here's a little bit from Aquinas. So remember, according to Jenkins, um, for Aquinas, CNC requires that the apprehension of the premises becomes the cause of, or the ground for, one's assent to the conclusion. And I think that's what's happening here. Um, you come to learn the premises are true, and then you're in a position to see the truth of your conclusion. So as I said, I think it's also fair to describe the situation as one in which once I'm in this position, now I can believe the conclusion because it's true. I see it here in the premises. The vines are a subset of the deciduous things. So as long as that's going on, I'm happy as well. And I think this contemporary view of knowledge um, is satisfied with that. All right, um, in the interest of time, I'm gonna skip induction. Um, but if you're interested in that sort of thing, feel free to bring it up in the Q&A. Um, so I, yeah, I got a story about how we could know things in the future, like how we could know the sun will rise tomorrow. But let's get to the good stuff, <laughs> the moral argument. Um, really quick though, I just wanna pause and say, on this view of knowledge, um, here's another thing to say in its favor. It uh, sort of validates the ways in which we can come to know that God exists according to Aquinas. So I think for Aquinas, one way we can um, get knowledge of God is via testimony. This is going to be knowledge by way of faith for Aquinas. So you might believe some things that the church teaches, and the church teaches those things because the early church taught it, and the apostles taught it, and the early church taught it, and the apostles taught it because Jesus taught it, and Jesus taught it because it was true. So in the cases of testimony like that, as long as it traces back to the truth, then you're going to get knowledge by way of testimony. And um, similarly for other sorts of religious doctrines, as long as they trace back to truth, that counts as knowledge. Um, these days, uh, very few of us, let's put it that way, have directly perceived God. Um, but the hope is, I think for Aquinas, the hope is one day, We'll all achieve that beatific vision. And in the event of that happening, we would be able to come to know God in that sort of unveiled, unmediated way. Uh, with respect to intuition and deduction, Aquinas said something interesting about whether we could know that God exists on the basis of intuition. He says that the proposition that God exists is self-evident in itself, but not to us, because we don't know the essence of God. So it's not like the case where we could know that bachelors are married, triangles have three sides, et cetera, by having become acquainted with um, the essence or nature of bachelors and triangles. According to Aquinas, um, we don't know the essence of God. And so although this is self-evident in itself, we're not in a position to appreciate that. So according to Aquinas, um, we'll have to demonstrate the existence of God by effects. So this isn't going to be a case of scientia because we're not reasoning from causes or grounds to effects. Rather, we're reasoning from effects to cause, but it would still count as a kind of demonstration and so knowledge by way of deduction. 
All right, so I just wanted to mention that um, it looks like this view of knowledge is going to, as I said, validate the ways in which we can know that God exists according to Aquinas. All right, so a quick recap before we move into the third and final stage. Um, so we saw that in ordinary perception for Aquinas, knowledge, our English word knowledge, looks like the best translation of notitia, which is the assimilation of some things formed to the intellect. So it's got to be some particular thing. It's got to be successful apprehension of a thing's form. And what I was recommending to you was, hey, maybe Aquinas has this in mind. Um, in the good case, in notitia, we end up with a belief because it's true. And that's what knowledge is, believing something because it's true. The truth of the belief figures crucially into the explanation of why you hold that belief. All right, so what I'd like to do now is take that view of knowledge, use this distinction that Aquinas makes, um, take this view of knowledge and see whether moral knowledge requires God. All right, so final stage, atheism and moral knowledge. Remember, knowledge is believing something because it's true. Now let's think a little bit about evolution. Um, or what I'd actually like to start with, uh, apologies in advance, I'd like to consider for a moment incest. <laughs> so I actually had a, found an animated gif or gif, or an ecclesiastical Latin gif. Of this sort of thing, but it was too scandalous, and I was like, ah, I can't do that. Um, so, again, apologies in advance, but um, just wanted to point out that when you consider incest, when you even just think about it, if you're functioning properly, you get a kind of disgust response. You know what I'm talking about? You have it right now? <laughs> you get a kind of disgust response. Um, and most people believe that incest is wrong, it should not be done. Uh, and from a naturalistic perspective, from a sort of atheistic perspective of evolution, if evolution was unguided, unorchestrated, and so on, um, then there's sort of two explanations of why we believe that incest is wrong. One is, look, natural selection was operating at the individual level, and there was pressure on individual creatures to develop a kind of hardwired incest avoidance mechanism. Because incest is a bad idea genetically, were you aware of that? increases the odds of genetic diseases in the offspring. Um, so creatures who developed this kind of hardwired disgust um, at the very thought of incest would tend to engage in it less and so have more and healthier babies. So it was adaptive to do this. Um, so you get that kind of gut human disgust response. Uh, something similar happened. So this is actually hardwired in humans. We have this hardwired incest avoidance mechanism. You don't have to teach kids to be disgusted by incest. It happens naturally. Um, we also have a hardwired fear response to this sort of shape. Did you know that? That sort of shape? <laughs> so you don't have to teach kids to be afraid of this sort of shape. It happens naturally. And you can kind of understand why. It's because snakes were so devastating to our ancestors that there was pressure on individuals to just avoid whenever they saw this shape. Even if it's not a snake, it's better, uh, better safe than sorry. Um, so something similar is happening with um, this incest avoidance mechanism. This is a case where you really do have hardwired gut feelings that could be inherited and passed along and so come to dominate the population because it's adapted. But also natural selection was operating at the population level. 
Another reason we, um, at least from a naturalistic, atheistic perspective, another reason that we believe that incest is wrong is because society sort of enforces that taboo. We have that taboo against incest um, embedded in our cultural norms, um, and it's policed, and it's enforced, um, and we teach it to children, and they absorb it through that kind of early teaching and socialization. And the reason why populations tend to do this is similar to why individuals tend to do this, because populations where incest happens a lot, that population is not going to thrive and flourish. Um, <clears throat> populations where incest happens very little will tend to do better, outcompete neighboring populations and so on. Um, and so that's why there is pressure on populations to um, adopt these sorts of anti-incest taboos. Okay, I'm just sort of reporting the kind of naturalistic explanation of why we think incest is wrong. But also, I guess, I should take this opportunity to make it clear that I do think incest is wrong. <laughs> In case there was any doubt, it definitely is wrong. And now I'm just sharing with you like, what the evolutionary explanation is of why we believe it's wrong. I think this is an incomplete explanation, as we'll see. But um, for the atheist, for the naturalist, this is the explanation. Okay, and then I have another example of um, how natural selection operates at the population level, um, having to do with the Shakers. Have you heard of the Shakers? And the Quake, maybe you've heard of the Quakers. <laughs> the Shakers are a little more obscure, and you'll soon see why. It's because um, they, as a population, were celibate. Procreation was forbidden after they joined the society. Children were added to the communities, but rarely through indenture, adoption, conversion. So it was forbidden to have babies among the Shakers. That's why you haven't heard of the Shakers. <laughs> As of 2019, according to Wikipedia, there's only one active Shaker village, which was news to me. I thought there were no more Shakers. But I guess in at least 2019, there were some Shakers. Many of the other Shaker settlements are now museums. Okay, so you can see that um, populations are sort of exploring the moral landscape and adopting systems of rules and taboos, um, the Shakers landed on this system that, uh, on which procreation was forbidden and they don't exist anymore. Okay. <laughs> so that was not a very adaptive strategy. Now, what I'd like to reflect on is um, why this is worrying to some people, why this is troubling to some people. Um, so some people have the response when they hear these explanations of why we believe that incest is wrong, they start getting nervous. They're like, oh, so I believe that incest is wrong ultimately just because it's maladaptive uh, at the individual level and the population level. It's genetically a bad idea. That's why I think it's morally wrong. But that doesn't seem like a good reason to believe that it's morally wrong. Um, yeah, because there could be things that are maladaptive but morally right and things that are adaptive, but morally wrong. So if all I know about my belief about incest is that it's adaptive, that doesn't tell me much about whether or not it's true. So it looks like I don't have very good reason to believe that incest really is wrong if these are the explanations of why I believe that incest is wrong. Okay, then you heard me say the if part, right? If that's the explanation of why incest is wrong, then we don't have very good reasons to think that incest is wrong. But again, incest is wrong. Okay. <laughs> I took an evolutionary psychology class once, and the professor just kept saying that, like every day. Like, I'm not endorsing these behaviors. I'm just, just telling you they're adaptive. Uh, okay. 
Um, so here's one expression of this kind of skeptical worry from E.O. Wilson and Michael Ruse, um, two atheists. Uh, E.O. Wilson loved termites, specialized in termites. Um, so this example involves termites, and here's what they said. They said, suppose that instead of evolving from savanna-dwelling primates, we had evolved in a very different way. If, like the termites, we needed to dwell in darkness, uh, sorry about this, eat each other's feces, and cannibalize the dead, I guess that's what termites do, <laughs> then our epigenetic rules, the sort of taboos we would have endorsed, and the sort of gut feelings we'd have, the sort of responses we have to these thoughts, like right now, when you think this thought, you feel disgusted. But when termites, if termites could think, if they thought about those, they'd probably feel like, oh yeah, I should definitely do that. That is, <laughs> that is attractive to me. Um, okay, so our rules would be very different from what they are now. Our minds would be strongly prone to extol such acts as beautiful and moral. We'd find it morally disgusting to live in the open air, to dispose of body waste. Why are you disposing of that perfectly good body waste? And burying the dead. Um, termites ayatollahs would surely declare such things to be against the will of God. <laughs> and the conclusion they draw is ethics does not have the objective foundation our biology leads us to think that it has. And they call this evolutionary moral skepticism. So they became skeptics about our moral beliefs. Because of this kind of evolutionary story, what they're imagining is, you know, suppose um, our ancestors had evolved to occupy a different sort of environmental niche. Um, uh, that's what they imagine here. If we had evolved to occupy a different kind of environmental niche, then our gut feeling responses to these sorts of behaviors would be different. The social taboos that populations would develop would be different. Our moral beliefs would be totally different. Um, yeah, and so that concerns them. Uh, another example, but it's escaping me now. Maybe it'll come back. So that's what concerns them, because it looks like what's shaping our moral beliefs, what's influencing our moral beliefs, is just facts about what's adaptive, not facts about what's true. Here's a similar kind of thought from the man himself, Charles Darwin. He says, if, for instance, to take an extreme case, men were reared under precisely the same conditions as hive bees, there can hardly be a doubt that our unmarried females would, like the worker bees, think it a sacred duty to kill their brothers and mothers would strive to kill their fertile daughters, and no one would think of interfering. So I guess that's how bees will. <laughs> that's pretty savage. Um, but again, the thought is, what if we had evolved differently to occupy a different kind of niche? What if we had evolved to occupy the niche that bees occupy? Then again, our moral beliefs would have been very different than they are. So again, it looks like what they're saying is the explanation of why we hold the moral beliefs that we do is given just in terms of what's adaptive and maladaptive. No mention of truth. So here you can see how these two thoughts are about to collide. We have a view about what knowledge is. Knowledge requires believing something because it's true. But on this view of the world, um, our moral beliefs are not held because they're true. They're held because they're adaptive. And that, um, yeah, so it would be maladaptive. All right, so that's the concern. So these are called evolutionary debunking arguments. And here's an evolutionary debunking argument in picture form. We've got a guy here uh, who says, hmm, today I will believe that incest is real. <laughs> Suppose he succeeds. So there he is believing that incest is wrong. Uh, in order for this to count as knowledge, what we would like is for the belief to be explained by its truth. 
we'd like the belief to trace back ultimately to its truth. We'd like this guy to be believing that incest is wrong ultimately because incest really is wrong. Then it would count as knowledge. But the concern that E.O. Wilson and Michael Ruse and Charles Darwin point out is we've got this competing explanation of why we believe what we do about morality. And the competing explanation has to do with natural selection shaping our gut feelings at an individual level, our social taboos at the population level. And so it looks like our belief that incest is wrong is going to be explained by uh, what was adaptive or maladaptive in our ancestral environments. No mention of truth. Oh yeah, okay, I got it. So the other example I was trying to think of was, <laughs> what if incest had been adaptive in ancestral environments? What if genetics had worked out in such a way that inbreeding was actually a really good idea, a good way to have many healthy babies? Then at least I think E.O. Wilson, Michael Ruse, Charles Darwin would say, um, our ayatollahs or whatever, our religious leaders would tell us, you gotta, you gotta inbreed, outbreeding is really bad. We would all have these sort of innate uh, responses of attraction towards um, inbreeding if that had occurred, if inbreeding had somehow been genetically a good idea. Okay, um, remember it's a bad idea though. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so um, that's their concern. We've got these competing explanations. Now the question is which one's going to win? Um, how can we decide what's really going on in this case? Do we really have both of these explanations operating, or is it just one? And if just one, which one? Well, I think the answer to that question is going to depend on your view of moral epistemology. How do we form moral beliefs? Which methods do we have to discover moral truths? Um, and I think there are just three options. If you can think of a fourth one, I'd love to hear it. But um, I think these are the three options. One is uh, these sorts of naturally evolved, um, hardwired moral faculties in our brains that we've been talking about. And the sort of naturally evolved social norms that populations develop and then enforce and propagate through early teaching and socialization. So just put in this category all the things that were influenced by natural selection. And so all the things that were shaped in order to promote adaptive behavior um, discourage maladaptive behavior. That's category one. Category two, um, this is a logical possibility. I mean, you might not believe this really happens. Um, I do, but you might not. But another possibility is divine revelation. So perhaps we could discover truths about morality by God telling us about them, either in scripture or through prophets, um, or perhaps through a supernaturally endowed conscience that was not shaped by natural selection to promote adaptive behavior, discourage maladaptive behavior, but rather a supernaturally endowed conscience that's aimed at truth. So put that in the category of divine revelation. Somehow God was involved in transmitting true beliefs about morality to us. And God would have an interest in getting us to have true beliefs. And so on that sort of picture, uh, it looks like we could have moral knowledge. A third possibility is um, again, what we were calling intuition, or what's sometimes called rational intuition. And that, again, to remind you, that's the method by which we come to discover fundamental, at least according to me, I believe in this, <laughs> I believe we have this power. It's the means by which we discover um, fundamental truths about morality, logic, mathematics, um, metaphysics, and so on. And um, it could be that, as I said, we discover truths about morality via intuition. Aquinas thought that this was the case. 
he said that the precepts of the natural law are self-evident principles. And so we can come to learn about the basic goods through rational intuition and come to learn that life, sociability, procreation, knowledge, these are all basic goods. And we discover this because they're self-evident. So we use this faculty of rational intuition to discover them. Now, importantly, this is going to be important in a minute, um, this faculty, when it operates, can't be um, operating via gut feelings or experiences or testimony from other people or anything like that. It's got to be direct, unmediated access to truth. The truth of these propositions, like knowledge is good, um, procreation is good, or whatever, the sort of precepts of the natural law. These have to be directly accessible by us so that our minds can appreciate the truth of these propositions, but not via like a glow of truth or a sense of their truthiness or something like that. We're not relying on any sort of experience or feeling about it. We can just see the truth of the proposition. Um, because if there were such things, if there were anything between us and the propositions that are reporting to us that they're true, this intermediary um, would be subject to the influences of natural selection. So that we would come to just have this intermediary when the proposition is adapted for us to believe, um, not necessarily because it's true. It would have the glow of truth even if it weren't true. I mean, that's kind of what's happening with your belief that incest is wrong on the naturalistic picture. It has the glow of truth about it. You're like, hey, that looks true. That feels true to me. Um, but on the E.O. Wilson, Michael Ruse, Charles Darwin view, that intermediary is misleading. It's really just telling you about what's adaptive, not about what's true. So when rational intuition operates, it's got to be direct and unmediated. Okay. Now the question is, what if atheism were true? How might we discover moral truths if atheism were true? What would be sensible or reasonable to believe in if you're an atheist? Here's the uncontroversial bit. I think you got to reject divine revelation, right? <laughs> okay, that one's Here's, okay, red flag warning. This is the most hand-wavy part of the argument. Um, I think that atheists can't sensibly accept this. I think there's a tension between an atheistic, naturalistic view of the world and rational intuition. I don't think there's any sort of logical incompatibility, but there's a sort of tension or incongruity. And so here in the hand-wavy portion of my talk, I'll try to express why that is. Um, but more work needs to be done here to make this sort of more watertight argument. Um, I think that if you're an atheist, you can't sensibly accept rational intuition because, um, again, that faculty would have to be operating in a direct, unmediated way. Somehow our minds are getting direct access to the truth of these propositions. Um, and so this faculty is operating in very important ways, unlike any of, the, any of our other sense modalities. You can sort of see, setting aside the problem of consciousness, you can sort of see how um, our other sense modalities could deliver knowledge. You know, you get like, you stimuli from the environment and pinch on your uh, sensory apparatus, and then that causes certain other states in your body, causes certain states in your brain. Something like what's going on inside a thermostat happens inside your brain. You get this little internal representation of external reality. Um, again, set aside the problem of consciousness. You can sort of see how the other senses work because they work via representations. And it looks like our bodies and especially our brains are just in the business of sort of representational engines. So you can see how that goes. But as I said, rational intuition is not going to operate via 
any sort of representation or report. No intermediary. It's just the unveiled truth between our mind's eye, as it it's the unveiled truth before our mind's eye, as it were. Um, no intermediary, no report, no representation, just direct access to truth. And it's hard to see how that could happen on an atheistic, naturalistic view of the world. And here's my last attempt to convince you of this. Imagine trying to program a computer to do this, or a machine to do this. Again, like it looks like computers are just in the business of you know shuffling symbols, processing information, they're sort of representational engines. And on an atheistic point of view, on a naturalistic point of view, our brains are just meat computers. They're just doing the same sort of thing that computers are doing, but a little bit better for now. Um, and so if you can't really see how a computer can get direct, immediate access to the truth of morality and metaphysics and so on, um, then if you're an atheist or a naturalist and you think our brains are just meat computers, you should conclude our brains can't do it either. This faculty doesn't exist. And in fact, that's um, what most philosophers do. Here's one more bit of evidence. This is a total appeal to popularity, but here it goes. Um, so there was a survey of philosophers uh, done back in 2012, asking them about their views on various topics. And then something interesting that the um, people who conducted the survey did was they found correlations between views. If you gave an answer in one category, you tended to give an answer in another category. And so these are the strongest correlations um, in the rank of rank of their strength. And here, pretty high on this, this list wait for a long time. This was one of the strongest correlations. If you said you were a rationalist about knowledge, so you believe in rational intuition, that's what that means. If you were a philosopher who said, yeah, I'm a rationalist, there was a really strong correlation between that and being a non-naturalist, rejecting naturalism in uh, metaphilosophy. So this is not an airtight case, but I'm just telling you, the experts um, <laughs> seem to sense that there's a tension here between believing in rational intuition and being a naturalist. There's a kind of tension here. Views that go nicely together is like empiricism and naturalism. Those go nicely together. Those pair well. Rationalism and naturalism, rationalism and atheism, those are kind of awkward to pair together. All right, so let's return now to our little friend here who's believing that incest is wrong. For this to be knowledge, again, we want it to be explained by the truth. On divine revelation and rational intuition, we can see how it would work. But if we're relying on our naturally evolved moral faculty and social norms, then it looks like our belief is not explained by the truth. And if the atheist can't accept divine revelation and rational intuition, then we're left with just this. Just these means of forming moral beliefs that aren't going to be explained in terms of truth. And so now you can sort of see the problem. Um, if knowledge is believing something because it's true, and on atheism, on naturalism, the most sensible thing to believe is this is how we're forming our moral beliefs, which has nothing to do with truth. That's why you can't have moral knowledge on that view. The theist is in a better position uh, because the theist can accept divine revelation and rational intuition. I think the theist should also acknowledge that we may have um, other sorts of biases. We might believe things about morality just because our culture told us, or just because we've got some hardwired disgust and attraction responses um, that ought to be ignored because they're not reliable. I think the theists can acknowledge that these are operating, and so we're subject to sort of um, biases that we should try to ignore. 
But even if that's happening, there's sort of two explanations of our belief. Um, as long as your belief is based on this or um, most directly influenced by this or something like that, uh, then this could still count as knowledge. So just imagine um, an example like this to prove that. Suppose we've got somebody on a jury who is charged with figuring out whether this defendant's guilty or innocent. And suppose this juror is subject to some sort of biases, as we all are. Um, so maybe it's a sort of sexism or racism, or maybe the defendant has a face tattoo and this person's really suspicious of people with face tattoos. Um, so the juror is influenced by some biases that aren't really tracking the truth. But suppose also the juror has been presented with overwhelming conclusive evidence that the defendant's guilty. The case is rock solid and the juror believes on that basis um, that the defendant's guilty. I think that would still count as knowledge. And it would still count as knowledge even if the juror was influenced to some degree by these biases, as long as the primary influence was the very good evidence, then the juror's belief that the defendant is guilty could still count as knowledge. Similarly here, even if we found out that our moral beliefs are subject to some bad kind of influences, as long as the good kind of influence was strong enough, and it's connected to truth, then we get knowledge. It's so sad about the slides. <laughs> that says knowledge. All right, so um, hey, check it out. We got an argument step by step. Here's how it goes. So if atheism's true, then all my moral beliefs come by way of natural selection, either this hardwired faculty in my brain or social norms enforced by my culture. If that's true, if all of my moral beliefs are coming by way of natural selection, then I hold my moral beliefs because they're adaptive, not because they're true. So from one and two, we draw this little sub-conclusion. If atheism is true, I'm holding my moral beliefs because they're adaptive, not because they're true. Here's our old friend, the truth about what knowledge is. Knowledge is believing something because it's true. All right, then from three and four, we conclude, if atheism is true, I don't know anything about morality. So notice the conclusion isn't anything like atheists can't know anything about morality. That's not the conclusion. And the conclusion is not that atheists can't behave morally. Of course they can. I think atheists know a lot about morality. I think they behave morally. Very many atheists um, put many religious people to shame when it comes to behaving morally. This little sub-conclusion is just, if atheism is actually true, then nobody knows anything about morality. Uh, just one more slide then, just to finish this off. If you're willing to uh, say that we do know some things about morality, then what's going to follow is atheism is false. And I think this argument has the virtue of, um, one virtue of this argument is the fact that I think a lot of people these days are going to endorse premise six. I mean, once upon a time it was said that um, kids these days all suffer from moral relativism. And I don't believe that anything is really good or bad or right or wrong. Um, but I, I think that we've moved past that. And we now live in an age where, if anything, we sort of suffer from a surfeit of moral certainty, like an overabundance of moral certainty. And so I think these days, um, it's awfully hard to deny that we know some things about morality. And really, put a lot of pressure on people to admit, yeah, they do know some things about morality. At least some things are right, other things are wrong. Um, so yeah, six looks pretty attractive. We do know some things about morality. All right, final recap. So 
Aquinas' notion of notitia seems to correspond to the English word knowledge. And what I was suggesting is this view, knowledge is believed in something because it's true. On this picture, we can know that God exists via testimony, that's knowledge by way of faith, or via deduction, that's what we call natural theology, and maybe one day, directly. Fingers crossed. Um, and what I also tried to argue was, if atheism is true, then we don't know anything about morality. But we do know some things about morality, don't we? And so what follows from that, again, atheism is false. Okay, thank you for your attention. I'm just writing this down, and I'm going to repeat it out loud. So the question was, how do we know rational intuition is the same between people? Yes. Or you said experienced the same between people? Um, so I think what you might be pointing out is there's a lot of interpersonal disagreement over what's obviously true. <laughs> um, so some people will say, you know, this proposition is obviously true. And then you'll find people on the other side who say, actually, it's obviously false or something like that. There might be cases like that. Is that what you were thinking of? Interpersonal yeah. disagreement when it comes to the um, alleged deliverances of rational intuition? Well, not only that, but also that there may be some people who don't have any beliefs that they um, intuit as actually true. Oh. So some people, you said, might just fail to have any intuitions? Or any experience of what we call rational intuitions. In addition to your case that you stated. Okay, so <clears throat> I think with the case of maybe small children, they might fail to have any sort of rational insight. Um, but I think anytime you engage in any sort of inference, um, anytime you do any sort of deduction, you're, ha you're forming a judgment about something that's obviously true. You think like, if A is true, then B is true. That strikes you as obvious. You say, that's a valid argument. That follows. So anytime you um, think some proposition follows from another, I would say you're having what we're calling an intuition. Um, you're having a sort of rational insight. Uh, so maybe very small children don't do that because uh, they don't do much. Um, but I think the more interesting case is what about, um, well, I guess another interesting case is like, I might say something strikes me as obvious. Here's a proposition that strikes me as obvious, but somebody else fails to have that intuition. They can't see that it's true. So that, that certainly happens. Um, I mean, that happens in like in, in the logic classes I teach. Sometimes like my job as a logic instructor is to like get the students to see the validity of some inference. And sometimes it takes a while. Um, but then eventually, in most cases, it sort of clicks and they're like, oh, yes, I see that now. If it's not the case that A and B are both true, then either A is false or B is false or something like that. Maybe the first time you hear that, you're like, uh, hold up, slow down. <laughs> or, something like that. or especially if you write it out in symbols, a lot of students are like, I don't, I don't see it. Um, but then the more you think about it, you realize, oh yeah, okay, that's gotta be true. That's, that's definitely valid. Um, so that might be happening. It could be that somebody just fails to appreciate uh, the truth of some proposition. Um, and then hopefully they do eventually, but maybe they never do. I mean, when mathematicians talk to each other, they seem to find a whole lot more obvious than I do. Um, 
and they're able to like, you know, use steps and proofs that aren't obvious to me, but it's obvious to them. And I don't know if it will ever be obvious to me. <laughs> um, and that's okay. I guess we all have to wrestle with our own limitations. And um, so it could be that that's what, that's what's happening. If somebody fails to have an intuition, um, maybe due to their limited capacities, they're just unable to appreciate the truth of this proposition. And maybe they will one day. Um, but another interesting case you mentioned is this sort of interpersonal disagreement. What's going on when somebody says proposition P is obviously true and somebody says actually it's obviously false or something like that. Um, I'm trying to think of a real life example of this because what I guess what happens, it's very easy to think of examples in philosophy where somebody claims a certain situation is obviously possible and other philosophers say, I don't think so, but they don't say it's rare that they think not only are you wrong, but the opposite is obviously true. Something like that. So I'm thinking of um, cases in like philosophy of mind. Uh, maybe you're familiar with um, cases involving zombies who are physically just like us, but lack consciousness, or maybe just examples of um, like Descartes thought it was pretty obviously possible that he could exist without anybody at all, nobody at all, and um, thought that was a possibility. And what often happens is people who disagree say, I just don't have that intuition, but what they, what it's rare to think of and what I'm trying to think of now is a case where somebody responds, well, actually I can see that that's impossible. In fact, that's obviously impossible. That, that's sort of, it's hard to think of a case like that. So I'll just tell you about this. I think this could happen. People have reported the things that they take to be obviously true that we later found out were false, <laughs> um, provably false. And so maybe an example of this would be um, like a naive comprehension axiom, or so um, Frege thought for any predicate you choose, there's going to be a set of all um, things that satisfy that predicate. So like the predicate is green or is tall or something like that. I could collect in a basket all the things that satisfy that predicate. All the green things I could put in a basket if it were big enough. All the tall things I could put in a basket if it were big enough. Um, and to a lot of people, the first time they hear that, they're like, oh, yeah, of course, I can do that with a big enough basket. Um, but then something that made Bertrand Russell famous is he proved that that's actually impossible. Um, that's false, I should say. That naive comprehension axiom is false um, because it would lead to paradoxes. And I'll leave it to you to look that up. Um, but I'll just say this about that sort of case. I think what the rationalist would say, should say about cases like that is Frege was having um, an intuition, but he misdescribed it or misexpressed it. Um, he did see the truth of some proposition, but it was a little more subtle than the one he actually wrote down on paper. Um, so the failure was in expression rather than a failure of rational insight. I'll just give you, here's a better example. Uh, maybe even kind of, and then I'll stop talking because this is a super long response. <laughs> maybe other people had questions. Um, but here's another example you might've heard. Have you ever had people tell you um, that parallel lines can touch or something like that? Yeah. And then that's supposed to be like a mind blower um, because we were all taught in school, parallel lines never touch. And then people tell you, well, actually they do. Um, but what they mean is like in non-Euclidean geometry, like on the surface of a sphere, you could have two lines, each of which is perpendicular to a third line, but these two lines touch. Um, so if you just imagine a globe, you've got the equator and the prime meridian 
Um, now imagine a third line. I don't think we have a name for it. Prime meridian, equator. Are you watching my hands? <laughs> um, equator, prime meridian. Now imagine this line. Um, it's perpendicular to the prime meridian, perpendicular to the equator. Um, and so if the definition of parallel lines is two lines perpendicular to a third, uh, then we've got parallel lines touching, the prime meridian and the equator touch. Um, but I think the obvious response to this sort of thing is that's not what I meant when I said parallel lines don't touch. I meant on a plane, right? Not on spheres, I meant on a plane. Um, so I think something like that is happening in alleged cases of failed intuition. I think it was really a failure of expression. All right, I'm going to leave it at that. Any other, unless there are no other questions, <laughs> then I'll just keep talking about um, spheres. Yes. We're developing Rapizia, and specifically how it relies on kind of this idea of forms or essences, similar to a platonic sense. Uh, how would you overcome more contemporary, yeah, contemporary-ish, say, um, analytic skepticism, the likes of uh, Wittgenstein versus confusion, uh, or uh, some of Saul Perry's works? Um, so how, how would you overcome Okay, um, I'm just trying to write this down and I'm going to remember to repeat the question. So you said when developing this notion of notitia, yeah. um, so maybe you just mean this view of knowledge that I presented, um, and how it relies on forms, how do you overcome more contemporary skepticism, for example, Wittgenstein's linguistic confusion, or I just wrote Kripke. Yeah. Okay. Can you okay? Can you tell me what the sort of skepticism you have in mind is, and why it would be a problem? I guess um, Wittgenstein's belief that uh, the theory of essences or forms relies on uh, confusion of functional language, namely this idea that uh, language corresponds to something in reality as opposed to uh, how we actually use it, which is just as I guess a tool in order to get people to do things or to put a notion across. Uh -huh. Okay, so uh, I'm to repeat that again. <laughs> okay, so you said um, the worry is something like Wittgenstein told us um, that language does not correspond to reality. Rather, it's just a sort of tool that we use to do what? Also just to uh, communicate ideas to other people. So language is a tool that we use to communicate ideas to other people, yeah. but it doesn't correspond to anything in the world. Yeah, it seems less of a descriptive factor. Yeah, so I guess um, so far I would be interested in hearing the argument for this view. So far I've just heard a view about what language is, and part of the view is language does not correspond to the world. And I guess one thing that comes to mind is uh, it must if Wittgenstein was describing anything there. I mean, when he tells us that language doesn't correspond to the world, I just wonder what, what does language mean in that sentence? And what does it correspond to? I mean, obviously we know things like English and Chinese and French and so on. Um, so at least there, I mean, in order for us to understand what he's saying, we must think these words have reference. Um, so if the view is that words don't refer to anything in reality, I think that... Um, I mean, that's obviously false, I'll give you examples, but also it's a sort of self-defeating position because in order to express the position, you've got to assume that your words are referring to things out there in the world. 
at least words like language. You're referring to languages when you talk when you use the word language. So yeah, I guess I'd be worried that. So yeah, just to repeat, I'd be interested to see the argument for this conclusion that you expressed. Um, but also I'd say there's just simply no way this conclusion could be true. Because <laughs> um, it's it's self-defeating. Um, so yeah, I would hesitate. I mean, gosh, far be it for me to say that Wittgenstein said something silly or obviously false. Um, so, I mean, it's been a while since I read that, um, so I'm not in a position to say what the argument really was or what the view really was, but if it's that, it couldn't possibly be true and it, it's self-defeating. That's what I would say. <laughs> yeah. And as for Kripke, I'm a huge fan, so I'd be really disappointed to learn that anything I said was inconsistent with anything Kripke said. I thought you were going to ask me about skepticism about the external world and how I defeat that. And that was really going to make me sweat. But I'm glad you didn't ask that. And nobody else is asking that either. Oh, <laughs> um, nah, no, it's going to be very sketchy and even more hand wavy than this stuff I already did. Any new questions, questioners, I should say, you have a new question, but any new questioners? Yes. There seems to be your argument for defeating the third was basically if one is true, that one evolution exists, then three can't exist because it's just a product of the natural evolution. Well, okay. So yes, is that correct? Well, let me see if I um, got it correctly. So you said uh, we've got these um, three proposals for how we could form moral beliefs. Um, a naturally evolved sort of moral faculty or social taboos. Uh, number two, divine revelation. Number three, rational intuition. And then you said your argument against this, and that this was the third one, rational intuition, was, um, what, what did you say again? Well, if one is true. What was one? Your natural evolution one class here, so if you, uh, oh, so I did try to argue that, like, if you're an atheist, if you're a naturalist, the most sensible or reasonable view to hold is one on which there is no rational intuition. So I did try to convince you of that. I did try to say, like, if atheism is true, here, I'll go back to that slide. If atheism is true, um, and I don't think we can accept that third option or the second option. Yeah, and then... The argument for eliminating that third option was, um, you know, the hand wavy stuff about computers and representational engines and direct access to these truths. And I tried to say, like, that doesn't really fit in nicely with atheism. Although I should add, like, I know atheists who are rationalists. They do it. They make it work. <laughs> but I think even they admit, like, it's a little bit awkward here that I, I need to have some explanation of how these two fit together. Um, it's a little bit like believing in karma as an atheist. I've met some atheists who believe in karma. So karma is the view that like what goes around comes around. If you do nice things, nice things will happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things happen to you. But they don't believe in God or anything like God. And so maybe when you hear that combination of views, you start wondering, like, how does that work? Who's making sure that what goes around comes around? Why does that keep happening? This, this is like a remarkable series of coincidences that seems to require an explanation. Um, so it's kind of weird to say there is an explanation. Okay, so being a rationalist and an atheist, I think, is a little bit like that. Seems to require explanation. Okay, um, but you haven't finished your question yet. But more of my question is, what's the, 
it feels like all of the requires some form of faith, whether you have so my question is the connection between the the faith to either believe in divine revelation or the faith to believe in one natural evolution. Because the, the faith in complete atheism or the faith in some form of divinity. What's that is it possible to reason to that? Is it seems to be pretty is it possible to give reasons um, and not just to some absolute such as atheism or or some form of faith? Oh. Because they seem to be relying on this. Okay, so you said um, it looks like all three of these, in order to believe that I could get moral beliefs, that my moral beliefs would come in one of these three ways, and that's gonna require faith. No matter what answer I give, it's gonna require some sort of faith. Yeah. Um, but then it also seemed like you were asking a more general question, like, doesn't believing in atheism require faith and also believing in God require faith? Um, is it possible to give reasons in either direction? So it seemed like on the one hand, you were asking specifically about moral epistemology. You were saying, do I have to rely on faith when it comes to moral epistemology? But then also, I thought maybe I heard in your question a more general worry, like, do I have to rely on faith when answering the question whether God exists? <laughs> Did I get your question right? Because I think I got a response loaded up either way. What? Oh, the first one, just with regard to the moral epistemology. Um, so let's see. I let's see. I tried to give you reasons why, um, if atheism is true, you can't accept these two. So I, that one's pretty clear, right? <laughs> if atheism is true, no divine revelation. And then I did try to give you reasons here, although as I tried to warn you. Um, that's the part of the argument that I'm least satisfied with, but um, I think there's something there. Um, so I did try to give you reasons for this conclusion. If atheism is true, you can't really sensibly accept these. There's a tension here. And um, I'll just say one final thing about my friends who are atheists and rationalists. Um, I think they would admit that rationalism is a surprising discovery given their sort of atheism. It's not what you would expect. If I just told you to like, close your eyes, now uh, suppose this is true, there's no God, uh, it's all just atoms in the void, um, no, nothing like God, nothing supernatural. How do you expect like human beings to function? I don't think you would expect them to have this sort of power to get direct immediate access to truth. You'd expect them to be something like thermostats or computers, you know, with like internal representations of external realities, processing information and so on, but no like direct access to the moral landscape as it were. And so for my friends who are atheists and rationalists, I think they would at least admit this, rationalism is evidence against their atheism. It's not knockdown evidence. Maybe they think they have really strong evidence that atheism is true, but by taking rationalism on board, they've sort of weakened their case for atheism. They've taken on some contrary evidence. Um, so I'll say if you escape this moral skepticism argument that tries to convince you that if atheism is true, we can't know anything about morality, if you try to escape that argument by saying, I'm just going to accept rational intuition, and uh, a sort of consolation prize for me will be that um, that is evidence against atheism. So it's sort of like out of the frying pan into the fire. <clears throat> That's sort of that situation. Yeah. And was that, does that satisfying to you or did you want a little bit more 
You want to follow up real quick? Okay. Well, I'd also just say this, like on this picture of faith that I kind of sketched for you, um, and on Aquinas' notion of faith, the things that we say we know by faith, like especially um, religious doctrines, those are really just held on the basis of testimony. And if the testimony traces back to the truth, hey, it's knowledge. Um, so knowledge and faith are compatible. And when you reflect on how much of our knowledge is based on testimony, uh, if you had any sort of stigma in your mind associated with the word faith, um, I think that diminishes when you reflect on how much of, how many of your beliefs are based on testimony. Even, I would say, probably all of your beliefs about science are based on testimony. <laughs> probably all of them. Um, all of them have to be? I was imagining, what if you did the ex an experiment yourself? <laughs> well, but, okay, well, I think you already getting at this, I'm sorry, I'm just part of this, or like the whole, like, like the, the, the image or the form, right, versus the truth of the object, right? Like, how can you define truth within your own perception versus you start? Okay, you said, how do you define truth from within your own perspective? Perception. Or per perspective. Perception or perspective. How do you define truth from within your own perspective. Was that a question for me, or you meant like generally well, people should like, wrestle with it? Just, just like the, the whole, like, like you saying, like, all science right, has to be faith based. Well, I, all of your reality is faith based. Oh, I, I didn't say that. That's a little more provocative. Well, no, no, I, uh, I said it's I'm all based saying, on testimony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. <laughs> and what we call faith is also based on testimony. So I just accuse them of relying on testimony, okay. which is not that bad. Um, but saying all science is faith based, ooh, no, that's no, provocative. No, 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 no. <laughs> Perception is fixed, right? The, the, the neural impulses that your mind receives, mm -hmm. you have to trust that those are real. Like, that's the nature of terms, right? Yeah, well, I guess what you're pointing out is even in cases of visual perception, it's very much like testimony. We say, like, you know, I believe the testimony of my eyes, or we say, like, don't believe your eyes, because our, our senses are just delivering us a report about what's out there in the world. We've got these experiences that purport to represent reality, but we know occasionally they misrepresent reality. We suffer from illusions and hallucinations once in a while. Uh, I guess not everyone has hallucinations. I've never had a hallucination <laughs> that I know of, unless this whole thing has been one. <laughs> um, right, but that, no, but that, that question right there, unless this whole thing, right? Uh-oh, uh -oh. I, I just walked into that one. <laughs> that's the hard problem with consciousness, right? Like, that's oh. the whole, you know, like, like, right, how do you validate that the reality that you experience yeah, so I just walked into the question like, um, do I have any sort of response to, um, can I solve the problem of the external world? How do I know external world skepticism? Um, yeah, I oh know. That was the one I was trying to avoid. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so this view of, this view of knowledge that um, I mentioned was knowledge is believing something because it's true. Okay, so, um, so long as, so currently I believe that there's like a pen on this table. So long as that's true and my belief traces back to its truth, hey, that counts as knowledge. But when we're in the philosophy classroom and we start asking questions about dreams and the matrix and so on, um, what we're, it seems to me what we're asking is, how do you know that you know that there's a pen here? Um, can you prove that sort of thing to me? Okay, so I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm going to quick lower your expectations because I don't really have anything here. Um, I know that. <laughs> yeah, I would have led with that. <laughs> yeah, the talk would have been on that if I, <laughs> if I could have um, solved external world skepticism. 
But yeah, what I've thought through a little bit is like what would be required on this view of knowledge, which um, I call explanationism. What would be required according to explanationism for me to know that I know that there's a pen here? So my belief is that I know that there's a pen here. In order for that belief to have to count as knowledge, I have to believe it because it's true. And so this is where things get really complicated and murky for me. What, how would that work that my belief that I know there's a pen on the table is held because it's true? And I'm just gonna leave it at that and say, explore that in your free time this evening um, and let me know <laughs> if you figure it out. Yes. Just, just oh, la last question. Chesterton had a, a response to the question in the sense that he said, reason itself is a matter of faith. It is an act of faith to assert that our thoughts have any relation to reality at all. So. Okay, so you said Chesterton had uh, something to say about this, and what he said was reason is a matter of faith? Yeah. He, his assertion is reason, reason itself is a matter of faith. Oh. It is an act of faith to assert that our thoughts have any relation to reality at all. Hmm. Oh, I guess I'd agree with him when it, oh, so you said it's a matter of faith, I should repeat this for the microphone, it's a matter of faith that our thoughts have any relation to reality at all, is that what you said? Um, so I guess when it comes to my thoughts about external world objects, um, I guess I agree. Um, but I think there are some things I can be absolutely certain of, uh, like that I exist and that two plus two is four, because there I'm not relying on any sort of report or intermediary. I've got that rational intuition kicking in um, and I can appreciate the truth of these propositions and I'm not relying on any sort of report or experience or whatever. So there, there's no faith involved, I think. I'm just like absolutely sure. Yeah. <laughs> hey, too bad that was the last question, huh? Um, yeah, I think in those sorts of cases, um, we can be absolutely certain. We can have full-blown Cartesian certainty. But unfortunately, you can't really build a life around those things. <laughs> um, so we have to venture out a little bit and believe many things about the external world that, as you said, we're sort of taking on faith. All right. Thank you again for your attention. <laughs> <laughs>